Okay, good morning everybody. I hope you rested well. Can you all hear me? Is that okay? Yeah? So we begin the retreat. Um, We begin this journey into these practices which are detailed out basically in a text that we'll refer to again and again throughout the course of the week simply as it's the, it's the main locus for much of the teachings that we find within both MBSR and MBCT, if not all of them, find their locality somewhere within this particular ancient text. Most of you or many of you will know the name of this text, if even, even if you haven't read it, which is the Satipatthana Sutta. This is often translated as the four foundations of mindfulness. Really a better translation, and just to get you to hear it in slightly different ways, is the four ways or four means by which we can establish mindfulness, rather than founding it. There's actually ways in which we can establish mindfulness. And in this text, um, I'm not going to go on too much about this, but in this text we'll find four specific Areas of experience which are open to us all of the time. That's the important point about this. These are not esoteric, they're not sort of mystical or strange objects. They're things that are open there in our experience all of the time and are accessible to us at any moment in time, actually. And these are the body. Something, we will gloss this. Um, So I'm going to stick with the most basic translation you will come across for this term, you will come across feelings, you will come across the mind, and finally, two sets of hindrances and, or two sets of things which are hindrances and those things which aid the waking up process. So these are the four means of establishing. The last is a little bit more difficult. The first three, I hope, sound really open to you all the time. Right now, you could do this right now. In fact, I'm going to kind of get us to think about this. Our body isn't some abstract concept, is it? Yeah. Hopefully you feel your presence here, sitting on this seat. Yeah. Isn't it a strange phrase? Um, this is what I'm going to talk about this morning, is the notion of the body. Yeah. Isn't it a strange phrase that we often have, particularly in English, of having a body? Yeah. As if it's like we have a pair of socks. Or a frying pan, or a car. Yeah, we have a body. It's a really odd phrase, and in many ways, <clears throat> the practices around the body in this, you know, as something which is open to our experience all the time, is making us aware of this is our being in the world. This is the way we access the world. This is not just something we have as another possession. our feelings, a feeling of pleasantness and unpleasantness which is arising with every experience no choice in this just something that's arising with every experience this is accessible to us again it's that literally as the texts refer to it these ancient Buddhist texts refer to it as the taste of our experience this is the taste of our experience this is if you like putting something on your tongue And you experience it as salty or sweet, pleasant or unpleasant. And it's that coming, something coming with immediacy. This is happening all the time. And then access to our minds. 
you know, with a simple question, how is our mind now? Those three aspects, I won't get into the last at this stage, but those three aspects of experience are open to you right at this moment, if we think about it. As you sit here, your body is experiencing all kinds of pleasant and unpleasant sensations, experiences. Yeah. Can you feel that? Yeah. Can you feel, you know, some of you I see are wrapped up in blankets, some not so. Some might be feeling it a little cooler, a little warmer. Yeah. In a way, that's a reactive pattern of saying, this body feels pleasantness, unpleasantness. Yeah. Wrap up to keep warm, take off to shed because I feel too warm. Too warm. Yeah. And then, of course, our minds. Yeah. Depend on how well you rested last night, and I hope you did rest well. Um, your minds are either going to feel bright or dull. Yeah. Sleepy or interested. Yeah. There can be anxiety there. There might be thoughts about projecting about the future. But our mind, as we well know, is continuing to throw up all sorts of experiences at this moment, which are accessible to some kind of introspective methodology. Just beginning to look, what's going on here? What's going on? So these four aspects, these four aspects, three, as I'm presenting them to you this morning, are open all the time. And I think this is part of the Buddha's genius. He was saying... Here is aspects that are not to do with anything religious, anything to do with belief systems, anything to do with superstition. This is your experience. This is you. There's a text that we find um, in these early teachings, which is called the Sabha Sutta. The Sabha Sutta means the teaching about the all, about everything. It sets itself a modest goal. (laughs) And he says, I will teach you everything, the all. This is everything. The mind, the body, the nose, the tongue. And you can see where this is going. It's basically our embodied experience. And of course our minds. This is the all. This is what we know. This is what we have access to. And our primary, most primary way of accessing our experience is through our embodiment. So what we'll be starting off with, probably for these next few days, is really beginning to examine that sense of our embodiment. In the original language, this this is called kaya anupasana, the contemplation of the body. Contemplation of the body makes it sound a little bit like we have and you know, thinking about the body, forming concepts about the body. This is not about the body as a concept, which is why I try to say this is your experience. You, know, you sit here at this moment. You know, this is your present moment experience. And when we start to speak about the body, we're starting to speak about it as a felt experience, not as a concept, not as something that's abstract. Yeah. It's interesting for those of you who are already teaching something like MBSR, MBCT, you will know when you do the first body scan, as you possibly remember when you went back and did your own first body scan, was when you have that invitation to take yourself down to your toes. Yeah, can you remember that? 
Generally what happens is most people start to think about their toes rather than really experience them. Fast forward to the end of an eight-week course, that's often changed quite radically. There's much more of that felt sense of the toes or whatever part of the body is being gone through in the body scan rather than this conceptualization, this distancing ourselves from it. Unfortunately, in a lot of contemporary experience, we don't, in a sense, own that embodiment fully. Own our sense of being here as a body. Interestingly, in the original languages that these texts are written in, we don't speak about body and mind, we talk about body-mind. We don't have the conjunction. It's very interesting, isn't it? You know, the West, we tend to have that little conjunction in whatever language it is, but in English it's and, body, and a mind. And generally what happens is when we have that dichotomization between body and mind, one gets elevated above the other. Traditionally in the Western world, the mind has been well elevated above the body. Yeah? That's what we concentrate on. Yeah? We're now beginning to learn, of course that so much of our mental experience is embodied experience, that we cannot distance the two. The French thinker Maurice Merleau-Ponty once said that the body is situated in the world just like the heart is situated in the body. Go back to that comment I made earlier on. Isn't it rather strange when we say we have a body? We don't say we have a heart. Yes, of course we do. But it's that much part of our bodily experience that we don't separate it out. We don't see it as a possession. In this early text, again to try and reorient us to our ways of thinking about our bodily experience, it says this strange phrase, and it's reiterated throughout the other sections of the text, through the four sections of the text. And this little phrase goes, to experience the body as body. To experience feeling as feeling, to experience mind as mind, and so on and so forth. To really experience the body as body. That almost sounds in English like a tautology. But what it's trying to say, to experience it not as, for example, a possession, as a self, but to have and to move in close to that felt sense of experience which is going on in this present moment. And the one thing that we really, that it makes this so accessible to us, we're not talking about past bodies, we're not talking about future bodies, we're talking about the body at this moment. Again, as you sit here, with its weightiness, with its heaviness, with its dullness sometimes, with its brightness, the body itself is sending messages to the mind. The mind is sending messages to the body. These are not two separate phenomena in this early way of teaching and thinking about the body. It's an integrated phenomena. It's our actual experience of being in this world. We're not a mind that somehow just has a body in that sense of possession. We are an embodied mind. 
And much of our cognitive processes are dependent on our ability, for example, to be motile, to move, to see things in different ways, and to even to project into ways of thinking because we know that we can move. I won't go into that at this moment. So, coming back to this felt experience, this present experience and this moment. The first experience is, as the text really tries to remind us, this body is. It exists. Again, just feel yourself sitting here at this moment. Can you really feel that? Just sitting here. We don't have to do any special contemplative practices just to feel that sense of being here in this room <clears throat> in this room with others as a body yeah. this body exists that's a primary reflection a primary understanding in one of James Joyce's short stories, some of you might be familiar with, it talks about a figure called Mr. Duffy who uh, lived at some distance from his body. <laughs> yeah. Again, I would say for many of us, particularly when we're caught up in you know, mental experience, sometimes distressing mental experience, we feel at a distance from our body. The invitation here is to come back to that real sense of embodiment. It also, the text reminds us to contemplate the body both internally and externally. That's an interesting phrase. Again, it runs throughout all of the sections. The internal and the external. To contemplate this body from that felt sense of the experience, but also in a way to be aware that there are other bodies in this room. There are other bodies sitting here with us. Already, I think, at this point, we see that the Buddha's movement into getting us to contemplate our body is not a body in isolation, but a body actually in relation to others. That's, again, our primary mode of communication, isn't it? Through our embodiment, through our being here. Being... Um, as one philosopher puts it in face to face situations so much of what we read about human experience human distress, human happiness is read through somebody's expression through their embodiment so we begin to really get that felt sense of our experience but then to widen it out into actually if I'm beginning to feel this Others are feeling this, or something similar. Does that make sense? One of our primary accesses to this feeling of embodiment. Now the Buddha talks about many ways we can access this, through posture, becoming aware of our postures, our sitting, our standing, our walking and our lying. In all of these postures we can cultivate this awareness. This awareness of the body as body. The awareness of the body existing. And even our interrelational awareness. Two. So, 
we have all of those postures open to us. The next part of this, we'll also talk about then one of our primary accesses to our sense of our embodiment is this body breathes. This body is breathing. Breath is life. We can understand this from the most basic sense um, even in ancient India, what was going, well, this breath is life, and that's an embodied phenomenon. When the body stops breathing, that's the end of life. Yeah. So breath, again, I think fulfills a twofold function, is it connects us, first of all, into that sense of being, but also into that sense of life, and it is present moment experience. This is happening now. I somehow think we tend to forget quite often how unique this breath is. How wonderful this breath is. How wonderful this body is. Does it ever strike you like that? that Just how wonderful this breath is that you're breathing at this moment? It has textures, it has length, it has a complete set of unique characteristics for each breath that you take. Yet somehow, I'm sure you probably, particularly if you've been involved in the mindfulness world for any length of time, sometimes think, oh, not the breath again. (laughs) Here we are, back to the breath. God, don't they do anything different other than go to the breath? But I think I just want to give you the opportunity to just reflect on how unique and how wonderful this breath is. And this breath that you breathe at this moment, this embodied breath, will never return. Not in the same way. It's unique each time you breathe. With its characteristics, with its texture, with its length and the ways that we can observe it. So we can move in much closer to beginning to become interested in our breath as this phenomena of life. Now, this is not breath fixation and not fixation around the sense of the body breathing, but it is one access, one way of beginning to really, really profoundly access this present moment to what is going on in this moment. There is simply the body and breath. Again, if we just stop for a second, can you feel that? When we just begin to feel that sense of the body breathing. I might even widen that a bit further and say, can we feel the sense of the body being breathed? Again, it's like, are I doing this? Am I really doing this? I mean, I personally think it's wonderful. The breath isn't under my control most of the time. I probably forget to breathe. Some of you might have this experience sometimes, you know, in a meditation where you get deeply absorbed in some thought process or something and you suddenly go, (gasps) (laughs) forgot to breathe. (laughs) So it's a jolly good job, isn't it, that it's part of the autonomic nervous system most of the time, you know, that we can just let it do its own thing. But each of those breaths is unique. So we move in close, we begin to look at that, to have that interest, because that interest is an interest in that life, which is you at this moment, as an embodied life.
So we begin to contemplate the wondrousness of the human body, yeah? beginning to open that up, yeah? moving away from that sense of the body is something simply I have and it has to be maintained and I have to, does all the, have, to have all the things done to it that I have to do, clean it, you know, exercise it, do all the things, feed it occasionally. Yeah. No, we move into a sense of you know, the uniqueness, the wondrousness of this experience of being embodied. Because we take for granted most of the time. Frustration with the body sometimes is also dukkha. This word that many of you will be familiar with, this sense of distress around embodied experiences. In beginning to move in close to the body, we begin to also move beyond the layers of thought. Back to felt experience. Lovely quotation from Rumi. Let's get away from Buddhist circles altogether. Lovely quotation from Rumi. He says, Just to be sentient in a body with the sun coming up is to be already in a state of rapture. Can you hear that? Just to be sentient in a body. A little bit dubious about that, but... sent in inner body with the sun coming up is already to be in a state of rapture the question is how often do we feel that (laughs) when we complain about oh this bit's hurting and that bit's hurting this bit doesn't work so well as I discover as I age (laughs) we lose that sense of still the uniqueness of this body the wondrousness of this body and the fact that it functions as it does. Something I've already mentioned and perhaps a good place to finish off this contemplation this morning is that this body is present moment experience. When we talk about the establishing of mindfulness many of you I know in this room I recognise a lot of faces here have heard Christine and myself, probably all three of us, speak at some time. This word sati, that's the word that's usually translated as mindfulness. I'm tending to get an allergy to the word mindfulness these days. Um, It seems to be so frequently used and used in all sorts of contexts where in many ways it gets devalued. So I think sometimes although I'm not going to be able to abolish that word because it's so much part of our currency now as in speaking about this particular type of practice. Sometimes we have to move a little bit closer in to get a real sense of what that's about. One of the best translations of the way of translating this word sati, which is the word that gets translated as mindfulness, is either as present moment experience or present moment recollection. Present moment experience. What is actually happening right now? That's really what's indicated by this word mindfulness. When we take it in its true etymological sense, actually, from the original language. What's actually going on in this moment? Not what you'd like to happen, but what is actually happening. And so this body, this breath, is always anchored in that present moment. If you like, this is our wonderful direct route 
when all things, when we're projecting into the future, when we're getting obsessed with the past, this body, this breath becomes our direct route to anchoring ourselves in this present moment. It's a bit like anchoring a boat on a stream. When things get turbulent and you're going down a river, sometimes it's good to just drop down anchor and to stabilise the boat. Wait for the the currents perhaps to get a little less agitated, um, for the river to become a little bit calmer, and then we can up anchor again and perhaps begin to float a little bit further. In a way, using that as a metaphor, what we're doing is simply anchoring in order for body-mind to stabilise. So, breath, body becomes our access to this present moment. When we find ourselves in other states, projecting into the future, going into the past, we know in a sense... Sometimes we're in a state of forgetfulness. Not always, because I think there's a lot of caveats to this, but we can be in a state of forgetfulness. If there's one way that the word mindfulness works quite well, I think it is in the relationship between being mindful, aware of the present moment, and being forgetful. So this is a process of remembrance. Remembering where we are, remembering what we're doing, And our primary site for that is our body, our breath, at this present moment. So that's the focus for today. This becomes our focus. So, let's take our seat. And perhaps one of the first things that... we should do is become aware of of taking our posture into something that reflects a different attitude, a different intention to our normal attitude of just sitting. Holding the body in this particular way, adopting a particular posture, is to keep us alert, to keep us aware, to keep us in this present moment as much as possible without introducing too much stress or too much strain into this. But having that spine upright, having the head balanced and the shoulders relaxed, our hands in a comfortable position, beginning to feel that intentional posture, that felt sense of being here and sitting actually quite differently from the way that we would normally sit. One of the things we will notice, of course, is that when (coughs) tiredness, sleepiness, lethargy, whatever it is that's arising, often our body shape, our body position will change, our posture will alter. So in lethargy we tend to find the shoulders round, the back becomes rounded as well. So it's good to check in with this throughout 
the sitting. If we find our shoulders slumping, our backs rounding, then we can straighten and re-establish that intention to be here as fully as we can at this moment. We might just wish to check in with also what's, in a sense, giving itself to us in our bodily experience at this moment. What's being given to us in this physical experience? What sensations do I notice? It may be the sensations of our legs on the floor if we're sitting cross-legged or on a kneeling bench or simply of our feet on the floor if we're sitting on a chair. And feeling, moving in close to that experience. What does it feel like to be in that reciprocal, touched, touching relationship? Because if my legs or feet are touching the floor, the floor is also touching them. To feel perhaps also the sensation of one hand resting in another if we have them just resting in our laps or just our hands placed on our thighs or knees. Again, notice the reciprocal touching there and the sensations are arising in that contact moment. And this is happening right here, right now. Moving in close to something that's going on all the time. The touch of clothing on our bodies, those contact points. Things that we often just simply do not notice. Often in our thought process because we are busy with our projects, thinking over our past experience. Lose sight of that simple awareness of the being here, the contact, and the touch of clothing on our bodies. Also, the air around us touching us with the arising of a feeling of warmth or coolness as the air touches exposed skin. There is a constant. So we sit in this embodied way, 
moving in close to our felt experience, not simply thinking about it. And also beginning to experience the breath as a constant phenomenon. Not altering, not changing that breath, that pattern, not breathing in any particular way. But noticing how, as body, that body breathes. And we can feel it in the sensations of the breath. Sensations of expansion and contraction that arise in the chest region as we take each breath. That simple rise and fall, no matter how small it may be, of the abdomen with each breath. More subtly still, the touch in the upper lip, nostrils region of the air as it brushes the upper lip, creating a sensation in the nostrils. See if you can feel that. Not think about it, but just feel it. experience in a way from the abdomen, the chest, the nose, we experience the whole body breathing. You can sometimes also discern small movements in the body, normally not detected. But again in that beginning to move much closer to our experience rather than distancing it through thought. We can begin to feel those small movements. the breath just coming and going.
to oops, narrow down your focus just a tiny little, little bit further into where you feel that breath, each breath most strongly. Could be at the abdomen, could be at the chest, it may be at the nose. <coughs> And the invitation is, if you feel it strongly at any one of these places, rather than just as that sense of the whole body breathing, then you can let your attention rest there. Let your awareness rest gently on that region and the sensations that are arising in that region. gentle resting. It's not a trying to grab hold of those sensations, clinging to them, desperately trying to hold yourself at the breath. It's a gentle resting and it's always a gentle returning when we bring our awareness back, when it's drifted off, as it inevitably will be at some point drifting off into thought, into emotion, into planning, simply to other sensations in the body that are arising and sounds. But always acknowledging what's called for our attention, what's, what's moved us away and that simple experience of the embodied breath. And coming back again. Once we've acknowledged.
As John mentioned, the invitation in the early teachings of mindfulness is to truly establish this present moment recollection, this wakefulness, whether standing, sitting, walking, or lying down. And I think it's, it's important to reflect upon that invitation. Um, what it would mean to, to really abide in that, that sense of being present, unforgetful, embodied, uh, wakeful. I think because of the very forms that we use, I, I think there's a, a sort of a little bit of conditioning built into them that when we hear the sound of the bell, the, the mind some, suddenly says, oh, the meditation is over. Hmm? Now I get on and do what? Whereas really the sound of the bell, if we think about the, the seamlessness of mindfulness we're endeavoring to establish, then the sound of the bell is simply signaling a change of posture. And hopefully that change of posture is imbued with as much mindfulness, as much wakefulness as the moment before the bell was rung. I think as a sort of background reflection today, you know, it, it is useful to, to just to have this sense without turning it into a project of being aware of what is present when mindfulness is absent. What is present when mindfulness is absent? This is an open question. I think it becomes evident to us quite quickly, but I think it's an important question, an important reflection to see what is present when mindfulness is absent. So this establishing mindfulness, whether sitting, standing, walking, lying down, is establishing this seamlessness, as the, the Buddha would suggest, that when there is no mindfulness of the body, there is really no mindfulness at all. The opposite of mindfulness in the way that we use it, as John says, is forgetfulness. But I think the other opposite of mindfulness is habit. That when really dissociated from the body, we often really do move into this dichotomized uh, way of living where we move into the field of habit that is often not only behavioral, obviously, but also psychological, emotional. <coughs> So in this particular format, in order to just a little bit challenge this, you know, meditations begin and end, we, we encourage this movement from a sitting posture into a standing posture. That's the first thing we do, isn't it? We don't automatically move into a walking posture. We stand up. So we, we find us, we move from that sitting posture into a standing posture and then into a walking practice. It's a kind of a funny term because we, we don't actually practice walking. We're, we're generally reasonably good at that. We learned that quite early in our lives. But we do actually practice what it is to inhabit this most familiar movement, so much part of our lives, with mindfulness rather than habit, with wakefulness rather than with forgetfulness. Um, so the, the process of moving to your walking path is as important as your arrival. I always smile when... People talk about the impatience they feel to, to get to their walking path and there's all these people in the way and you know, they're trying to pass them and find ways around these slow-moving people in order to be mindful when they arrive. 
Uh, it's always rather a curiosity, isn't it? But it is helpful actually to find a walking path. And, you know, we may continue to be blessed with some dry weather. If so, it, it can often be quite helpful to find a walking path in the gardens. It, it's such a beautiful environment here. And, you know, that actually plays a part in gladdening the mind and, you know, bringing a sense of well-being. But to establish a path, and it's important to have a path, because it's establishing a walking path that distinguishes a walking period from being an intentional cultivation from just going for a walk or a stroll. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to establish the container. Um, and the path really doesn't need to be very long. Um, you know, 10 metres, 15 metres is, is fine. But it's a path that has a beginning and it has a turning point and a return to that beginning. And it's so interesting to, to explore what it takes to actually stay within that path. You know, we feel so many pulls, don't we, to, to, to actually step out of our path, you know. Something's more interesting, or I'm tired, or I'm frustrated, or I'm bored, or, you know, that looks like a better path over there. It's so interesting to explore what it is actually to stay within that path and to, to really establish mindfulness as the body moves in space. It can be helpful to, you know, particularly, I think, in the early part of the retreat when the mind perhaps is a little bit uh, more scattered or or mental states might be more more present, to, to really have a, a, a kind of grounding of our attention and the, the feet touching the ground, the feet moving, you know, in, integral to taking every step in our life. This can be our, our focus to actually really, ah, this is where I establish mindfulness just now, just now. Now, the, that can change over, over the days. You know, if we feel too, too contracted, it, it's often helpful to feel the whole body walking. It's always a question of pace. You know, I don't think any of us are particularly see some intrinsic virtue in uh, being the slowest yogi on the retreat. Um, we all know we can be really slow and really mindless. You know, so, but, but it is helpful to actually step a little bit out of our normal pace of walking, just so, even just a little bit slower, because this is actually taking us out of the field of habit. It actually makes the walking practice more intentional. It actually draws the attention into the body, rather when we just assume a normal pace of walking, it's like an open door for the mind to actually depart from the body. So slowing the pace down just a little, but you can experiment with that. Yeah? Within that slowing down, do I slow down a little? Do I slow down a little bit more? Ah, no, just a little is better. Yeah? To actually really see what serves you well to be most awake in that walking path. And as much as possible to sustain attention. This is really, you know, the, the great, the great, Skills, the great gift of developing this practice is not just being able to establish mindfulness but being able to sustain mindfulness and I'm sure we would all recognise this is the hardest part isn't it it's not that difficult to establish but to be able to sustain mindfulness this is where, where we really feel that the craft and the art of the practice really lies because sustaining mindfulness is sustaining intention as we would recognize. 
So being able to sustain the practice from its beginning to its end as much as you're able to. Okay, so we have a walking period now and then we come back to sit.